The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, we are in Luke chapter 9. Um, with that being said, um, we are uh, still making our way through Luke 9. Oh, one thing related to Luke 9 and Dave is that over the next month, Dave is going to be preaching for the next four weeks. Um, this is just a part of um, us exploring what God's calling Dave to, and honestly, to give me a bit of um, a reprieve, and so you can look forward to that. Um, we are in the middle of Luke 9, chapter 18. I am going to read Luke 18 to 27. Um, as we work through the passage, if you do not have a Bible, please don't worry. Those all will be on the screen behind me um, as we work through it. Uh, I am going to read these for us. We're going to ask for God's help and get going. By the way, if you have questions, one of the things we do here as a church is after the sermon, we will do Q&A uh, in the service. So you can use the number that's on the screen. It's on the bottom of all the slides. That number goes right to my phone. I'll read the questions out loud. You can certainly ask questions by raising your hand or just, you know, politely saying them out loud. But we provide the number just so that people, if they, if you feel uncomfortable speaking in a large group, you have an awkward question. I'm not going to name you unless your name is Dave Hamilton. Um, so we're going to read now. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he, that's Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, uh, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others the one that the prophets of old were, has risen. You can kind of hear them hemming and hawing in that. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man that he gains the whole world and, lo um, and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the glory of the angels? And I tell you this truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Father, as we open your word and we read, we pray for the Spirit. You would open our hearts to see and hear and experience the presence of Jesus with us the power of his crucifixion, the power of his resurrection, and our life in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to introduce a word. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this, but I'd love to kind of hear if you have any thoughts on this. Um, does anybody know the word cruciform? Does that anybody sound familiar to anybody? I was Googling it this morning. Apparently, um, what is it, the show about the nun, the cruciform sword or whatever? There's a sh What? It's in the Indian. It's in the Indian. It, oh, yes, it is. 
Yes, the brotherhood of the... All right, Al. Everybody, Al's going to be preaching this morning. Um, <laughs> the word cruciform. Um, so the word cruciform is a word um, that has obviously crucifixion kind of in its, its base word. It really is just a word that captures the idea of something that's shaped like the cross. So that, that means more than just like a cross that you might wear for jewelry or even like, an, uh, like a cross um, that you would see uh, in an art you know, painting of some kind. Cruciform is the idea of somebody or something, primarily somebody, who embraces suffering as a way of hoping in future uh, good. So, for example, I know that you guys know that I'm, I'm like all about that MCU life. So, Tony Stark, at the end of Endgame, right, his storyline is cruciform and how he embraces giving himself for the sake of others so that others might benefit. It's this idea of embracing suffering. It's embracing a life that has pain involved. It's embracing it without, result, without uh, resentment. It's re embracing it uh, coming underneath it, knowing that there's better things in the future. That's the idea of cruciform, right? It's embracing suffering. And what we have here um, in this picture and this little story from Jesus' life is effectively an invitation to follow Jesus. And that invitation means that our life will be shaped to be like his life. It will be cruciform. Jesus' life is heading towards the cross here at the end of chapter 9 in Luke. It explicitly says that Jesus turns his eye towards Jerusalem, which is Luke's way of saying he's got the, cru the, the crucifixion right in front of him. And here we have in this call for us to follow him, saying effectively, your life, if you're going to follow Jesus, will be shaped to be like his. Now, I will say, this passage, if I understand it correctly, captures within it some of the most fundamentally difficult and hard parts of the Christian life. This is where I spend in the most difficult parts of my pastoral ministry among us. This, is, this captures, I think, some of the hardest lessons that we learn. This effectively takes us into not merely kind of um, entry-level Christianity, but this takes us into graduate-level call of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So fundamentally, this is a call for us to follow Jesus and have our lives shaped to be like his. So, what we're going to say, the main point, we can pop over here. When we follow a crucified Savior, he shapes us with a cruciformed life. That's, that's really what this passage is laying out for us. And we're going to look at it in two parts. If you have any questions, please send them in. That's no big deal. So we're going to look at the first part, and we're going to see here that faith, that's, that's what we mean by following, faith in Jesus. What Jesus is getting at here is faith in the whole Christ story. We'll, we'll fill out what I mean by the whole Christ. But we want to pick up here in verse 18. Now it happened that he, that's Jesus, was praying alone, and the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Right, and they answered, like, you can kind of hear them hemming and hawing of, like, well, some say John the Baptist, and just for context, John the Baptist would have been beheaded at this point in the storyline, so effectively it's kind of like, um, you know, that guy that was just recently killed by the authorities, you're kind of like his spirit has taken over your life type thing. The others say Elijah, right? So Elijah would have been kind of the pinnacle of the Old Testament prophets, um, 
kind of like saying like when we talk about like political candidates, like, man, he's like a, you know, Thomas Jefferson, or like, kind of like calling back, like, you think of like the, the founding fathers type language. That's this type of language here, right? Here is somebody that embodies the pinnacle of that Old Testament life. Somebody say the prophets, and then the others, and others, the one that the prophets of old has risen, right? And they're kind of like, yeah, we know you're important, don't know, kind of like they're the agnostics of this whole equation. They're kind of like important, but I don't know how or why or what, but important, right? So Jesus, again, as we're going through Luke, the crowds become kind of like this negative uh, group connotation, and he zeroes in. He goes, okay, that's what the crowds say. Who do you say that I am? And here's where we begin to see Peter kind of taking on a central, kind of like he's the spokesman for the apostles. And he says with confidence the Christ of God, right? Now, why does Peter say this? So far, in the Gospel of Luke, if, you, uh, if you've read the Luke, Luke before or you've been following along with us, what we've seen Jesus do thus far has been um, calm the raging waters and sea. So basically standing in the middle of a hurricane and telling it to cut it out, right? So we've seen that. We've seen him not just once, but multiple times address people who are possessed by demons and telling the demons, get out of here. And they obeyed him, all right? So those are two big things, right? We've seen him heal people of various diseases. We've seen him raise people from the dead, right? I mean, this is not just kind of like, oh, you know, he went around and kissed babies and shook hands and he was a good guy, right? This is incredible stuff. So if that's the outline of what you would expect for like the Messiah to be, Peter's just saying, Jesus, you've colored that in the best I've ever seen not so bad. But Jesus doesn't just leave Peter there. Jesus, you see, verse 21 and 22, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Jesus effectively says to Peter, yeah, but not quite. Right? It's like I don't know what your favorite TV show is, but I've been watching through Stranger Things with my uh, older two, and um, it's like saying you're a Stranger Things fan after season one, knowing that there's like three incredible seasons still to come, and all that happens within that storyline with those characters, right? That's basically what Jesus says here. He's like, okay, Peter, like, I know you're a fan, so I'm the Christ of God. Great. Season one, lots of cool stuff. Peter, let me fill you in season two, right? Uh, rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Uh, okay, that kind of comes with the program. He's already kind of gotten in fights with them. Season three of the life and times of Christ, the Christ of God. A kill. Yikes. And then you can kind of see season four and raised on the third day. And you can just kind of see Peter just kind of like, uh, okay. Jesus does not want him to have a faith in the Christ of God that is not the whole picture. That's really what Jesus is going after here. And that's why he's charging him, hey, basically, be quiet about this for a while because 
we're season one. I've just given you, like, if you've ever read Harry Potter or one of, one of these stories and you're like, you know the ending, <laughs> like, don't tell the people who've just started the story, right? He's basically saying, like, let everybody else figure this out. We're just going to keep this here because everybody else is going to figure this out when it happens. But the point being, Jesus lays out the whole story. This is the story of God. And this is the story of God realized in Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh, who will live out this story among us. This is the story about how God takes back the world and saves us from Satan, sin, and death. Right, this is the whole Christ. Everything about him. It's not just that Jesus takes on the suffering and pains of life and death. He will take on sin he will take them on to the fullest extent. But that's not the full gospel. The whole story of God is that Jesus takes on all of these things, and then, by his own power for who he is, breathes life into dead lungs in a grave someday, three days after he's killed, rises from the dead by his own will, which is incredible. And then after he has lived among people for 40 days, will, will rise up to the right hand of the Father and right now presides over the universe. He guides the whole world. That's the whole picture of the whole Christ. And in the middle of that, I want to draw you back to verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? See, where did even this faith, this, we might even call it this half-picture faith of Peter, where did it come from? Jesus was praying for him. You see, even though Jesus wants us to have a full picture of who he is, even just a little picture of, I think I get who he is, but I don't quite understand, even that, which is Peter's faith, is what Jesus is praying for. It's blessed by Jesus. He loves it. He's not saying, you can't be a follower unless you understand everything about me, and then you can follow me. He's calling you to say, who do you see me to be for you? Am I going to be your savior? That we can figure out what that means down the road. Or will you reject me? See, Jesus calls us, and he doesn't expect us to have a perfect faith. And here's the critical part in this. The faith that follows Jesus doesn't have to be strong. It just has to have a strong Savior. I think that's one of the most critical parts of what it means to be a disciple that I, I struggle to help us understand sometimes. Right? We want to have faith for big things and blah, blah, okay, that's great. But the Bible's picture of what it means to follow God isn't that you have great faith. It's that you have a great God. And he uses half-hearted, sometimes weak, sometimes wavering, sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes people who are just all over the place. I don't know where you're at this morning, what this week looked like, what this next week's going to look like. Whether you have feeble, strong, even if your faith is kind of like, meh. Jesus says, follow me. You don't have to figure it out. He, he will fill out the picture along the way. But he wants you in this story of discipleship. Now, it is true that that story of discipleship is going to take on a certain shape. 
So that's what we're going to look at now. It's not just that it kind of becomes whatever. Jesus has a very kind of definite kind of game plan, so to speak, of what your life looks like in following him. So that's what we're going to look at here, living in the whole Christ story, verse 23 to 27. So, let me read this for us, and then we'll kind of, uh, I'll tell, I'll, I'll explain what we're going to do here. And he said to all, now, I, I will say this, he said to all, he's probably talking to his disciples, but it's clear that Luke wants us to read this as all y'all guys. So, King's Cross here, Manchester, New Hampshire, the corner of Valley and Wilson, this is where it has us in view because it's gone beyond just the 12. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the angels of the Father and of the holy angels. I'm sorry, when he, yeah. But I truly tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is um, the heart of what Jesus says about discipleship. He actually repeats this phrase three other times in the Gospel of Luke. He says effectively the same thing in 12, 8 through 9, 14, 27. 1733, if you want to go look this up. But he basically says the same thing three other times. So four times Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That, that's the repeated framing of what it means to live in Jesus. So what we're going to do now, what I want to do is basically put up kind of four... Can we go to the next slide? These are kind of four ways that Jesus addresses us to give us some specifics for what it means to follow him. We're, uh, I put them all up there, trusting that we can work through these without getting distracted by them, but the first one that we want to look at here is daily de denying yourself. Verse 23, this is what Jesus says here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, right? Now, when, I, when we think about this, like, what is he saying here? Is this is this what all of those Christians believe where they're just kind of like mean and bad and just terrible about themselves all the time? Is this just like negative self-talk? Like whatever you are, whoever you are, 100% doesn't matter. You're a terrible person, right? Or is this just like denying your, like denying your desires? Like what does Jesus have in view here? I think what Jesus has in view here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, a few chapters ago, we preached through Luke 6, and Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom, and woe to the rich, for they have received their inheritance. I think Jesus is still expounding Luke 6 here when he says, deny yourself. He's saying from Luke 6, you need to look at your life and the ways in which you are set up by the culture, by your family, by your religious upbringing, any of these sort of identity markers and whatever way would lead you away from building your identity on Jesus, you need to deny it. One scholar said it like this. This is a call to our identity that it would be open to constructing a whole new identity not based on ethnic origins or relations of mutual obligation, right? So think of business relationships. 
but in a new community that is centered on God and resolutely faithful to Jesus' message. I frame the question here, how will you build your identity, as a, an invitation for us to talk through in our small groups or just to kind of meditate on your own, but in what ways do we build our identities? Right, you think about identity language is all kind of, kind of permeating our culture today, and I don't think it's terrible. I think it's actually an invitation for us to meditate on these gospel dynamics. Right? Whether I don't really understand what anybody means by woke anymore. That just it doesn't. It, the word has no traction for me. But we do have identities, right? Male, female, husband, wife, single, celibate. Um, you know, good at soccer, terrible at soccer. Um, Republican, Democrat, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-death penalty, pro-war, anti-war. All those, we begin to kind of go through, we're kind of compartmentalized into identities and the values that reflect how we build our identity. And Jesus calls us and says, will you build your identity, not so that you can get those things, but so that you get me? Will you build your identity on me and me alone? I think there's a lot to say here. I want to keep us moving because I, I guess I could kind of rant on this for a while. But what are the ways that the culture tells us what our identity is? I think one of the things that we need to be aware of is that we are, we are in a consumeristic culture. We are built as consumers from the moment we're born. I mean, even the way that social media is constructed views you and all of your time and every aspect of your physiology as something to be monetized for the sake of advertisements. You are treated like something to be consumed by the social media, by these little gadgets that we have in our phones or in our pockets. That is an identity shaper. How do we, how do we understand our identity in Jesus? Is shaped by just basically being built in a culture that is entirely consumeristic. All right. I think there's a lot to explore there. If you guys want to ask questions, I'm happy to rant about anything there. Um, but I don't get paid to rant on Sunday mornings. <laughs> I think these are good questions to ask. And I ask them in a broad way because I'm not trying to tell you what to think about this. I'm, it's an invitation. I don't know what self-denial looks like for you. I can kind of guess. But we're not guessing right here. The next thing, taking up your cross... How will you defend your identity? So here we go. He says, If anybody will follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So here is the second part of what Jesus says. Taking up your cross daily. Now you have to remember, in the ancient Roman context, this has in view the, the Roman practice of crucifixion. So if you're not familiar with the Roman practice of crucifixion, um, they would basically have up at the top of a hill, largely in very public areas, probably by the highway or kind of places where everybody could kind of see what was going on. They would have these big posts put in the ground, and then people who were sentenced to death would carry the crossbeam of their execution up the hill to be crucified. Additionally, as a part of that, if you were sentenced to death in the Roman Empire, you were forfeited both all of your possessions and a burial. So you were, by the system of the world, 
not only publicly shamed and put in display of like, learn your lesson here, <laughs> like you better keep in line, but also you were denied basic, basic human dignity of any earthly inheritance going to your family or the dignity of just a burial, right? So it was an absolute, you were cut off. So that's behind when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. This world and everything about it is either for you to be a part of it or against you. See, the point is that you are either a part of this, this world system and its kingdom building for being rich in its own terms or being for Jesus' kingdom and being poor on his terms. Now, I'm not talking economics. We'll talk about that in a second. I'm not talking about your bank account or your checks or how much you give to the church or anything like that. I'm talking about your status in the world. See, the world would seek to destroy us so that it can consume us, right? Even think about all the stuff going on with patriotism and how we are just being pawned for other people's political campaigns. And that's whether they wear a blue tie or a red tie. I don't care. Jesus calls us to himself so that we can escape and be liberated to live according to his rules, live according to his law, live according to his system, which is a self-giving love and goodness for the good of other people that they might flourish and benefit. Right? So that others around us would experience newness and life and safety and comfort and care, even at our own expense, because they are people that we have been called to love. So, I think an entry point into this question of how will you defend your identity, I framed it like that, is when we feel crossed, we feel like we've been offended, when we feel like we haven't gotten what we deserve, when we have those like negative, like, this isn't right, personally, that's an invitation to ask, how, is my, how am I defending my identity, right? I'm a smart person. How dare you say that to me? Or how you make that, dare you make that assumption, right? Or whatever it is. Like, that negative experience, that sort of, I, I think Jesus is going at a gut check level. Again, I can't tell you what the details are for you of what it means to take up your cross. But I will say, it's not just kind of like bearing your problems in life. Like, I've heard it this week. <laughs> Ironically, as I was preparing the sermon, a guy next to me was like, well, it's just my cross to bear. That, that's not what this is about. Like, this is not just kind of like, well, you know, I don't make enough money. Ah, it's just my cross to bear. This is an identity language of how will you be a happy person even if you don't get what you deserve or are, is owed you, and will you, will you look to Jesus or will you do it on your own terms? I, if this is make, not making sense, please text in. I, I feel like I'm... David, am I making sense? At least Dave makes sense, thinks I make sense. But he's an elder candidate. He has, he has to, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. Can we, keep, can we go for a few more minutes as we kind of think through this? Okay. Oh, one topic that I've thought about lately, which I think, so we've said here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, verse 24 
Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man that he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? One thing that I've thought about lately is this whole kind of category of the... Has, is anybody familiar with the idea of a vow of poverty? Is that registered for folks? So if you're familiar with, like, monks, right, it's more specifically attributed to them. A vow of poverty is where they basically say, like, um, we think in economic terms, right? A vow of poverty, you know, folks, specifically kind of Roman Catholic tradition, um, they wear, like, brown, I don't know what you call them, robes? Habits. There we go. That's a technical term. And they have, like, a, a rope around their waist. So it's very kind of, like, iconic in terms of I have historically always thought of like the vow of poverty as just, like in strictly economic terms. You know, they don't make any money. All the money they make, they have to give to the monastery. That type of thing, right? It comes up in like conversations about pastoral compensation, like how much I get paid. You know, like people will say something like, "Well, pastors don't take a vow of poverty, so we need to pay our pastors well." That type of thing. So it's still like economic terms. I've lately been kind of um, been exploring the uh, some monastic life stuff, not because I'm going to become a monk, just clarify. Uh, but um, as I've been reading through their, their literature and just kind of um, talking with some folks within that community, it's clear that the vow of poverty has very little to do with money and more with a recognition how, of how our world and the culture that it is in uses power and renouncing it. Right? I think within this vow of poverty is basically choosing to renounce what this world uses to control and dominate each other and ourselves. It's a renouncing of these things. I think there's something for us to consider in this whole vow of poverty thing. Not because I want each of us to be like, I want you guys to all get ha habits. <laughs> We're all going to show up to church and have little habits and, you know, you know, whip ourselves in the back and you know, whatever it is, the skit from Monty Python, right? We're not doing that. But there is, I think, something for us to meditate on and saying, recognizing, this is how my world works around me. And this is how it exercises control and power and dehumanizes other people. And I will renounce it. Right? There's a specific cutting off. Right now, there's all types of biblical language of you know, if a man lusts, let him cut out his eye. You know, that type of language. It's the same kind of field of vision, so to speak. Right? But it captures this idea. If you were to be a disciple of Jesus, I'm not saying there's not going to, like, I'm not saying, hey, let's all just send out an invitation card for suffering because it's great, but it will be a part of your life. And what does it mean then to choose to follow Jesus in ways that specifically hurt or are intentional, like for example, I know that I get paid to preach. I am very good at communicating. I'm very good also at a good rant. And I'm also really good at a really good rant that's pointed to hurt other people. I'm really good at it. And I have experienced the pain of doing it before. So I choose very specifically how I communicate and where I communicate because I do not want for my skills at communicating to become something that inflicts pain on other people, right? It's a bit of a, a, bit of a vow of poverty, right? There's a, I know that I could get a lot of attention. 
I know that I could do, go really well with getting over people and get a lot of people who pay attention to me because of my sweet rants. Like, that's why I don't do it. People are like, you should do a podcast, Jacob. I'm like, I like having a job. I, <laughs> I don't want to lose friends, that type of thing. Right? You might think that's trivial. I understand that it might be trivial on the grand scheme of things. But I think, for me, it's a part of this vow of I would gain traction in the world, but I'm choosing not to because I want my life to be laid underneath other people so that they grow in Jesus. And I could get, I could get a lot of attention this way, but I can serve faithfully and humbly this way. I'm not sure what that looks like for you, but I think Jesus is getting after that, that range of things. Let me finish out with this, a few thoughts. All right, you guys cool? All right, sorry. I know I keep asking that, and I do that just to kind of make sure I'm hot up here. <laughs> and I'm like, I turn the AC on just so you know. Um, final part, and then we'll, we'll close with this, right? Your daily revolution with Jesus is what we're aiming at here. How will you respond to Jesus' presence in your discipleship? I want to go back up here to verse 23. We've read this before. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. We talked a little about that. Take up his cross. And it's, it's just a throwaway phrase in our, English, in our English Bibles, and follow me. But there's a really critical part here. In the, I, I'm not going to nerd out too much. But in the Greek New Testament, um, there's a verb form for take up his cross and deny himself. And that form is, is called aorist. And it, what it means is it looks at the action involved, right, as though it's completed. So imagine there's a parade going in front of us. It's like standing on top of the Brady Sullivan building, looking down on the parade. You can see the whole parade from front to back. That's kind of like what those, those verbs are doing. Looking down at the whole action of taking up your cross and, follow, or, and denying yourself. Follow me is actually in an imperative, continuous action, which is basically like somebody at the front of the parade saying, hey, come in, and come in the parade from the side angle. Come in the parade and follow with me. You see, the language in this sentence here is structured so that it ends with a personal address from Jesus. You, come, come in. Right? It's a joining with Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? He's leading your discipleship. He's leading what it means for you to be a follower. Right? He's the one leading your following of him. And he's inviting, for you, he's inviting you to recognize in every step of the way, whatever you're taking up your cross, whatever you're denying is, whatever those things are, Jesus himself is with you. And if we take anything from Peter earlier, it doesn't particularly matter how strong your faith is. It just matters that Jesus is with you. It doesn't particularly matter how, how resolved your denying is. It doesn't particularly matter how vigorous you are. The most important component in all of this is that Jesus himself not only is with you, but you pick up in this, he loves your discipleship. He loves what you're doing in following him. He loves that you desire to follow him. He loves that you are a part of his story. 
And he comes in and he starts to shape your life to be like his, which is this whole cruciform thing that we've talked about. But in the middle of all that is a Jesus who, yes, was crucified for our sin. But that's not the whole Christ. He was raised. He has power over Satan, sin, and death. He presides at the mast of the universe and guides this world towards his story. I want to put up a quote from N.T. Wright just to capture what this means as we kind of zoom out here. One of the dangers of saying too easily that the Messiah died for our sins is to imagine that thereafter there'll be no more dying to do, no more sufferings to undergo. The revolution that began on the cross only works through the cross. Suffering and dying is the way by which the world is changed. You see, your life, and whatever it looks like for you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus, whatever that looks like, whatever those little moments are, whether it's in parenting, whether it's in work, family, health, whatever those areas are, whatever that looks like, it will always look like a story that involves not just death, but resurrection in the life of Jesus. It will always look towards that story. We live out this story. The only part that we can really do and only do with Jesus is this death part. But we live this death part, whatever that looks like, knowing that the life part is something that Jesus has already secured for us. Whatever that looks like, he is so eager to bring whatever that resurrection story is in your life, whether it's recovery, whether it's renewal of relationships, whether it's the death of a dream and the discovery of another one, whatever that looks like, this story in your personal life is attached, is hitched into this big grand story that Jesus is telling So when we follow a crucified Savior, he shapes us with a crucified life that hopes in his resurrection power. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this passage, help us as we follow Jesus, as we desire him. And whatever the specifics of our denying, whatever the specifics of our suffering, whatever the specifics are of our cross-taking is, daily would you help us to renounce those things that would keep us from you and help us to live out of the life of the kingdom of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.